But then we can go from that and then do, all right, we're doing the fly 10, A run, fly 10, straight leg bound, fly 20, fly 30, fly 40 with different variations of movements, different calls and response. Or like, for example, we're going to do a run where you're going for 30 meters, but now we're going to work on, hey, we want you to run as l- with the longest stride you possibly can. All mm. right, now we want you to run with the quickest frequency oh, we cool. want to possibly poles, can. Yeah. So, so we try to measure that out and then that becomes another point of emphasis. That was Ryan Banta, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. If you're a coach tired of using Excel or clunky software for your athletes, you'll definitely be interested in today's sponsor, Strength Coach Pro. Strength Coach Pro is a digital training platform designed to help strength coaches create, distribute, and track programs for their clients. It's easy to tell that Strength Coach Pro was created by a coach for coaches. The versatile program builder makes it easy to build out detailed training programs, distribute them to athletes, and track the progress, all without spreadsheets or data entry. One of the best things about Strength Coach Pro is that there are no recurring fees. You pay one fee and you get lifetime access to the program. And to check out what Strength Coach Pro can do for you, head to strengthcoachpro.com. That's strengthcoachpro.com. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. It's great to have you here. Our guest today is track and field coach Ryan Banta. Ryan has over two decades of experience. He's the author of the Sprinter's Compendium book. Ryan is an MTCCCA Hall of Fame coach. It's always kind of funny to say the Track and Field Cross Country Association, um, the abbreviation there. Uh, Ryan is a frequently appearing podcast guest. He's a writer on many popular track and field and athletic performance outlets. And Ryan's track team has achieved substantial success over the years. And amidst a number of top five finishes in the state, they won the 2022 Girls Class 4 Missouri State Championship. One of the great things about working with human athletes is there's not just one way to reach a high level of success with athletes. There's not just one training program. There's multiple ways to train athletes towards a high physical potential. But although there are many ways, it's really important. It, actually, it's critical to have principles and an overarching philosophy. And some of those principles and overarching philosophies can be things like, what is your training cycle setup? What is your progression going to look like over the course of the year? How will you progress your training? How will you address novelty? Are you going to be training more of the center or working at the ends of whatever skill you're at and working towards the middle? And by understanding these philosophies and principles, we can have a better understanding, one, of our own training program and where we're heading. And also, we can, uh, we can look at a training program and look at why it may or may not have had quite the success based off the athletes that we were working with and then the end goal in mind. On today's show, Ryan will be getting into his core philosophy and principles, and he'll be speaking particularly on the critical mass training program in his track and field coaching process. And that is a broad spanning path of development from athletes' freshman years up to their senior years. And it kind of reminds me of a multi-sport approach in terms of playing multiple sports through one's athletic career, but applied to track and field. And it's also an interesting insight just in developing general physical properties that ultimately end in outputs. Ryan will also get into his core speed training cycle. He'll be talking about his 14 uh, 14-day speed training cycle. He'll also be talking about his centrist path to speed. So how that differs from a block-based approach and how he really gets to that central and how he starts from the center and then works and explores the ends of a 100-meter dash, 200-meter dash, whatever 
specific event you'll be training. Uh, Ryan will be talking about his progression, how he adds variety into his program, resisted sprinting, and much more. Whether you are a track coach in athletic performance, either way, this is a very track-heavy program, but the principles are universal. And especially once we get into the back half of the show, there is a ton of universal information in there. Ryan is such a wealth of information. The amount of, of track and field power speed training material that this man has studied is immense, and it's always fun talking to him. So let's get to episode 352 with Coach Ryan Banta. Hey, Ryan, welcome back to the show. It's good to have you here, man. Absolutely, dude. Thanks for having me on. You know, I've, I've had the pleasure of speaking with you a number of times, and so hopefully today we'll have something for the audience that's unique and different and, and casts a wide net and helps a lot of people out in a lot of different sports. Yeah, for sure. I, I like the idea of casting the wide net. I think that, yeah, certainly doing enough of these shows and you know, you've been on several times thinking about either different ways, unique ways to frame things, just ways that can stir different lines of thinking and also just see things from a global perspective. It's always, it's always an awesome chat or to be able to discuss those things. And you know, before we get into like the nitty gritty of you know, training breakdowns and philosophies. I- I'm curious. I want. I want to ask you two things. One is, um, you know, how have your seasons been going since last time we chatted? You know, at the in the post COVID era and all that, and or just recent years. And then, are there any things that you've been like learning, or anything you maybe have altered or tweaked in the last five years? I think it's been a while since we actually had a solid training conversation. So, those two questions, whatever way you want to take them. Yeah, my absolute pleasure. So the biggest thing is we've, you know, we finished uh, second in 2021 at the state championship in Missouri and won a state championship in the four by two. And then last year in 2022, we won the team state title and the four by two title and the four by four title and the 200 and the 100 hurdles and the 300 hurdles and actually set a state record in the 100 hurdles. And our young lady who is back in our program as a junior, just finished second at the New Balance Indoor Nationals in the Indoor 60. She's one of the fastest sophomores as of last year in the history of the United States in the event. And we also almost broke the state record in the four by two as well last year. So, and from a performance standpoint, it's been really great considering that we're still kind of working our way out and climbing our way out of that COVID hole which was a really big challenge for all of us as as coaches who want to be involved in sport and doing great things that are physically healthy. I um, just got done doing my Banta World Tour, speaking in five different places across the winter, and that was really cool and connecting with a lot of different coaches. In fact, in Ohio, where you're at, and Indiana, and a number of other places as well. And then, you know, it's just, it's been really neat to kind of see that and There's been some challenges since COVID. The numbers for all sports programs, not just mine, are are, are quite a bit down. And we're Mm -hmm. seeing athletes giving up on sport before they even jump into high school. So it's been harder and harder. And we have to be more careful all the time with kind of dealing with that human resource of the people. They're actually giving their blood, sweat, and tears to us every day and making sure that they enjoy it. And as we were talking pre-conversation, you know, just trying to keep kids in the program because you oftentimes think, well, success will drive that entirely. And that's not always the case. And so we have to evolve and adjust to the times. To answer your second question, there's a lot of things that have changed. I would say, and the biggest aspect of that is cutting down on my weekly volume that I'm doing in my sessions, in my training, trying to find the sweet spot of threading the needle of doing enough 
but not necessarily the minimum, but then also trying to maximize the kids in an appropriate way as we grow them year to year, month to month, week to week in training, making sure that I honor that we're needing to run fast, needing to run fast right away, and not doing as much of the traditional long to short, which is kind of which we'll get into a conversation Mm -hmm. later about some of the principles and aspects and pillars of the critical mass system, which in more general is kind of this idea of a concurrent training system. And I think a bigger emphasis on the mindset of my athletes and giving them actual skillable, workable things in sports psychology to help them deal not only with the rigors of a good track season or cross country season, but also like, how do you manage your parents? How do you manage Mm -hmm. your friends? How do you manage the trauma and stress of the things that they've gone through? We're seeing a lot more mental health issues in our programs and in our classrooms than I've ever seen in my 20 years of education. And it is 100% a hangover, if you will, from COVID because that stuff was real and uh and and scary for them so i think that when we look at that we can kind of unpack a lot of that stuff and dive a little bit deeper but those are definitely the you know lower of volume trying to find that sweet spot making sure that we maximize maximum velocity making sure we work on the mental health aspect and other things as well to make sure that we have a program that fits most of our kids and being more prescriptive than restrictive in my programming yeah you know, it's funny because I, I want to get right into those three things right now. But I, I think what I'll do is actually I'll, I'll have you describe the components of the critical mass system. And then I'll, maybe I'll follow up because that description might just answer some of those things. I, I know the sports psychology thing is super interesting, too. I mean, I've, I've been intentional, too, on even on this podcast, uh, just having more episodes that have to do with the mind. And even the link between moving the body in particular ways or, or you know, like whether it's, I guess, track, sprinting endurance whether it's jujitsu and you're actually physically you know dealing with like with somebody combating somebody just the different mental elements or particular things you would get in the weight room confidence or otherwise and just the impact that has on your mind i think that's something that's gonna be more and more and and more important Uh, especially yeah like you just said I, i think we're becoming more aware of a lot of those mental health type things and i think if we can see what we do not just as yeah we want to win a championship which is awesome but you know but also like Everything you do also has a component of the mind. And I, I just think, yeah, the more that we're aware of that, I just think it's it's growing and it's really important. Absolutely. And then and all that kind of ties together. So like one of the things that I knew last year that we were going to run into is that the training preparation and a base, right? A base of what? Right. A base of fitness, mm-hmm. a base of sports <clears throat> preparedness, a base of speed. Like we were lacking in those things because of COVID and and not being able to train in the off season in the winter and kids maybe searching for other options so they could still scratch that itch, but they might not be with you. And so one of the things I knew how good we were going to be last year. And I knew that in some respects, and people may not like to hear this, but in track and field, because things are so measurable, you can kind of predict where you're going to finish up if you do things right, based on what you had mm-hmm. the year before. And I didn't want any of these kids to get hurt because we had so many issues in the COVID year with injuries where we never had had those before. And one of the things that I changed is I told the young ladies, I'm like, look, you're not going to run more than two races a meet until we get to our one home invitational, which is a big meet. And we're going to run a little bit more there. And then for the rest of the year until districts, 
you're not going to run more than two races or two events. And then at districts and sectionals and state, we're kind of stuck because we're trying to win. And at that point, you know, you hopefully have signed a scholarship and you've gotten the stats and and all that kind of stuff. And I was very concerned because the state championship is a two-day meet. And I'm like, oh my God, what are we going to do? You know, and oh my God, we're not going to be ready and we're not going to be fit, you know. And it's like, well, you can still handle that in training. I can still get that done in training. I don't need to do that in competition to to facilitate that for my athletes. And then what ended up happening in that situation is we had our sectional meet. There was terrible downpours and rains that were coming in the whole entire day, and they canceled all of the sectional meets and pushed them into the state championship week for Monday. So then we had to race Monday, Friday, Saturday, four races Monday, four races Friday, four races Saturday. So they had to run. By Saturday, they were on their 12th race when they were crossing the line as state champions in the 4 by 4 And I thought, oh, my God, we're not going to be able to survive it. We're not going to be able to make it. We're not going to be ready because we've never seen that in, in a meet. And lo and behold, the kids were ready because they've accumulated mm-hmm. that over the four to three years that they were with me. And we took care of it in training. We didn't need to blow their legs out in competition for them to will themselves into that position. And so like that was a big aha moment for me that I don't really care about winning an invite, but I like to get like, hey, a, a track meet day is considered like a hard mm-hmm. practice sometimes. And for me, it's like, I don't know that I need to do that anymore. I think we can do this and still get things done in practice and allow these kids to compete healthy, mentally fresh, and build confidence that may do more for you than the physical aspect of running four races and a bunch <clears> of meets throughout the year. Yeah, I I spent when I was coaching in college, I mean, I coached a lot of events, but the ones I think I noticed or the thing I think I noticed the most out of anything in terms of who was going to get hurt or who was going to tank at conference was there was anytime there was jumpers in the conference that every time I saw them, they were doing all three jumps and they never like took they they never like took a, a week off a triple jump or something. I'm always kind of sitting there like it's always kind of ticking down like I. I know at some point you're going to, it's just not going to happen. And lo and behold, those those kids almost never did well, like later throughout the season. They almost always got hurt or just had a bad meet toward the end. And I was, so yeah, I, I, I definitely, um, I definitely hear you with that one. You know, I, let's, um, let's get into, cause I, I have a lot of questions in terms of the meat and potatoes of training I'd like to cover. And you, know, you mentioned a little bit or alluded to the critical mass system. So could you get into that? Like, so what is that philosophy and what does it look like uh, in a high school track training program? So one of the things, uh, one of my rivals, intellectual rivals, if you will, one of my frenemies talked about how this system is too complex and you need to narrow this thing down into its key component parts that make it different than maybe some other people really are trying to do, right? And so that way, keep it simple so people can use this and adaptate this to their own program and build it in. So the first thing is, I never, ever, ever build my program around seven days. We have to go 14 days. And one of the guys who really influenced me on the, well, there's two. Mike Hurst is this Australian sprint coach who has coached the Australian record holder, both male and female in the 400. A lot of people know him because he used to be on Charlie Francis's forums back Mm -hmm. in the day. And he goes, his Kit Kat, uh, just a real nice bloke in Australia. And he talked about like, you need to be doing all the things all the time throughout the year so a we gotta always be maximally sprinting we need to be accelerating we need to have tempo work we need to have speed reserve or you can call it speed endurance work 
We need to have some special endurance, right? We need to have recovery days. All of that needs to be in your program. Well, when you start to line this training up, you're like, oh my God, I only got seven days. You know, I'm not going to see this training frequently enough. And what people forget is you will, even if you've got 10 workouts that I've listed off that you can get done and you've got 14 days to do it, and you've got one day of complete passive rest on a Sunday for both of those weeks, right? You don't recognize, and this is one of the things we can get into, is that while you're sprinting, while you're doing tempo work, while you're running speed reserve, or you're doing race modeling, or you're accelerating, or you're lifting weights, or you're doing plyometrics, there are other things that are being checked off the box that may not be the focus. And the other thing is with the program is my philosophy. I believe in resting the system, but not necessarily resting the athlete, because there are some things you can get done that are kind of rest without going complete rest, even though we're going to do that as well. And, you know, if you're sprinting a race modeling run, let's say a 150 on a Monday or a Thursday in my program, you're still getting some endurance in that. You're still getting some aerobic work, but you are absolutely getting components of acceleration and max velocity. And then you're just stretching it out. So even though you might only have one day with that session, you're still getting another session of targeted acceleration, targeted max velocity. So what we try to do is try to have one of those days for those 14 days. The other thing I like to do is I like to try to start in the middle. And what I mean by that is, is let's say you go to the 800 down to the 100, and we consider all of those to be sprints, which I absolutely do. So I'm going to start in the 200, 400 area when I'm doing my training and then play with systems that are below that, that are more 100 and 200 meter focused days. And then I'm going to play with days that are above that, that are more 400 and 800 meter days, just in terms of what I'm trying to accomplish in the training sessions. Then within the intervals that I run in practice, I do the same thing dependent upon what event we're trying to target. So if we're doing the 200, then we're going to spend time sprinting 150s, or we're going to run 250s or 300s because you want to underload and overload, which there are benefits of both. And we want to play with that load, unload, load, unload, overload within the intervals that we're running within our sessions. And so that's another part of the critical mass system. Then, because I'm going two weeks, if I've got a targeted day on Monday week one, that's going to be acceleration and max velocity orientated. And I rarely split those up because I feel like now we're trying to slice the onion too thin. I think we can do both because the reality is, is if you're going to run max velocity, you have to accelerate. Nobody's dropping you on a treadmill at full mm-hmm. speed. I mean, I've seen that occasionally, but you know, you're still accelerating before you get to maximum velocity. So that's still that doesn't make any sense to me to split those up. And I know some people do. I think that's silly, and I think that's that's too. You're making it more complex than it needs to be. Coming from a guy who's complex. Okay, so Monday, you know, we might do max velocity and acceleration. Well, then Thursday of week two. I'm going to have something that looks like that again. Okay. So I'm going to spread it out where you're not doing it again until week two, Thursday. But you have to remember there are other sessions where some of those components are still being ticked off the box, you know, or checking off those things for you. So then what I would do 
is on my second good quality workout, the Thursday of week one, well, that would be more of a speed reserve, speed endurance, maybe a more 400 centric workout. So maybe I'm running two times 350 all out, 20 plus minutes recovery in between those on a Thursday. And then I might follow back up with on a Monday of another 400 meter centric workout. So what you're doing is you're flipping the order with week one and week two of your points of emphasis. So Monday, week one would be more speed orientated. Monday, week two would be more enduring orientated. Thursday, week one would be more enduring orientated. Thursday, week two would be more speed orientated. So even within your two-week cycle, you're creating an emphasis of speed every three days, and then you're creating an emphasis of endurance every three days. And then let's not forget that you're either race modeling on a Saturday or you're competing on a Saturday, which would be the best of both worlds, where you're getting everything that you want in a competition because competitions are your your best practice. And so I feel like what people screw up is that when they hear my training and because we've had success in the four by four, we have the state record in the four by eight, they forget that I've had seven runners up in the hundred meter dash, you know, in the state meet. And so like, I believe you need to be honoring all of these things so we can make a globally, not only fit athlete, but a global high performer. Because I feel like if you go too far down one path and you go way down that road, then an athlete, as they naturally develop, they evolve, they learn the sport, they learn the skill, you might actually be cutting their legs out from under them with something that you could have stimulated and developed that might take a little bit longer, but you're going to make them better so that they might be able to hurdle. They might be able to step up and run the 800. They might be able to step down and run the 100. You know, what if you have a kid that came out for cross country? So you just assume they're a distance runner. And then you never do any max velocity or acceleration work or runway work as a long jumper or triple jumper. You may never know they're actually meant to do that. They could be your best cross country kid, but they also could be your best jumper and sprinter. And you owe it to figure that stuff out. And so a big component of my program is testing every kid in my program through a bunch of different physical tests so that I can then try to mailbox them if you will, at the beginning of the season to give them the best chance to be successful and then allow us to design our training around that. But every athlete in my program, they're going to be a hurdler and a quarter miler until they tell me otherwise. And then they do tell me otherwise, not with their words, but with their actions. And because we still do max velocity sprinting, I know if they can sprint because we still do some speed reserve or speed endurance work. I know that they might still be resilient and they show me through those workouts and through their performances, what they're best at. And then we focus and narrow the focus down. You know, we don't need to be in the middle. We don't need to go over as much. And if we do go over again, it's going to be an over that's specific for their event. So always tying it back to the means of the competition and the means of their event in and of itself while doing those 10 workouts that you need to get done in two weeks over and over and over again with three-day periods of emphasis between speed, power, and then more resilience and endurance. And so the athlete's going to be balanced, which 
a lot of times means that maybe they're not going to be as good year number one in that very narrow thing they're going to be great at. But let's give them a chance to prove that that's actually what it is and should be. And then you also leave some work on the table that will allow the kid to develop over the four years or however long you get to have. So that's kind of the basics of the running component. And we can talk about some of the other stuff as we go down more specifically. Yeah. So the first thing I want to just circle back on is one of the last things you were saying. And then after this, I want to get to that 14-day training cycle. Um, I was writing it down and it didn't make sense to me until you mentioned, oh yeah, we're in season, we're either race modeling on Saturday or we're doing a competition. I was like, okay, now this makes sense. So I I do want to go back and I I want to kind of have some more questions and thoughts on that, that, uh, cycle, but I, you, something you said, I just thought this was really interesting. And I, I haven't, until you mentioned it, I I knew you had promoted like more events, like being good at a wider range. And I, I really like that idea of, and I'm assuming when you say hurdles, like, are you talking more like short hurdles, 300, like just do them both and then 400 and then kind of go from there or is there any, is just generally just hurdles long and short, or is it, is there any emphasis or preference on one or the other? So I, I don't have a preference. I think that from a coaching perspective, an athlete is going to be able to 300 hurdle or 400 hurdle for you quicker than they're probably going to hundred hurdle for you. You know, so that's where like JT Ayers, who's out in California, he talks about, he doesn't even have his hurdlers hurdle their freshman year. He just wants to develop them and build the skills. And then once he kind of figures out how good of an athlete they are, then he slides it in. I am not of that philosophy. I, I want to hurdle as much as I can as soon as I can. And and even though that may not mean that that young lady or young man will run the one tens or the of the hundreds right away. So I like to do all of those things and and do all of that stuff. And one of the things that we do to facilitate that is I change the menu of events every week. We try not to run the same schedule of events with my athletes, which means I try to host meets that allow me to do that, where I can put a lot of people in a competition and change up what they're doing so that no one owns an event from the psychological standpoint or the team culture standpoint, but also to figure out if they can do it in a competition. And so it's easier to go 300s because they're low, they're spread out, and you can hurdle ugly. Mm-hmm. You know, but the hundred hurdles and the hundred ten hurdles, those are going to take a lot of time. So Sky Lee, who's in my program right now, superstar kid, stud of all studs, second in the United States in the indoor sixty and state state record holder in the hundred hurdles. There was like, oh, she had to be really good at the hundred hurdles right away. No, she wasn't. We ran two hundred meter hurdle races her freshman year, knowing that we'll eventually go back to that, knowing how good she was eventually going to be in that. But you know, some coaches would force that. Mm. So instead of forcing that, we still 300 hurdled. So she got used to being competitively over barriers and things like that, knowing, and she still practiced for the hundred hurdles, even though I had no intention of her running those in the state series. And she ran the hundred meter dash and her freshman year, she was third behind her teammate who was second. And then a superstar, unbelievable kid out in Raytown South, who's one of the fastest girls in the United States. And so we just kind of knew that that was going to be the deal. And then last year, we're like, hey, this is going to be your big event. With how fast you are in the flat sprints, once we get this down, you are going to be unstoppable. And if you look at my program, we don't have a lot of her in our program. But when we do, we owe it to ourselves to make sure that we're being mindful of the long-term preparation for that. And so every kid in my program can run 400 meters. I mean, that's that's a given. But then they might not be there all the time and their training might not be there all the time if they show me that 
Well, they're a long jump and triple jumper. Well, then we probably don't need to be doing as much of that work because they're going to long and triple. Well, then that's going to be our emphasis, you know, and then we're going to tie our training into that and build programming around that that facilitates that better than maybe a traditional 400, 200 meter program. I wanted to take a quick minute to tell you about my story with our sponsor, Lost Empire Herbs. Several years ago, I had strongman and mental training expert Logan Christopher on the show, and in the interview, I realized that Logan, in addition to deadlifting over 500 pounds and ripping phone books in half, also was the founder of an herbalism company. Long story short, I ended up ordering the Phoenix Formula, one of their flagship products, and in taking that, I noticed increased energy and a decreased reliance on coffee, which honestly, I was kind of expecting that. But what I didn't expect is after a few weeks, I noticed my weight room numbers had increased substantially. And the Phoenix formula also led me to getting shilajit resin, which is found in the Phoenix formula and recommended by a lot of strength coaches, as well as other Lost Empire Herbs products. I've been using Lost Empire Herbs ever since, and I have sponsors of the show that I believe in, that I use, and that I want to share with you. So if you want to check them out, head to lostempireherbs.com slash just fly for 15% off my favorite Lost Empire Herbs products. You get a 365-day money-back guarantee. I really enjoy having Lost Empire Herbs as a sponsor of this show, and I hope you get a chance to check out what they have to offer. Let's get back to the podcast. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense too. Certainly with those longer hurdles, it's you can definitely not be, I mean, I've seen kids who are horrible hurdlers who got thrown into that race and did pretty, de- pretty decent. So compared right. to the rhythm of the, the hundreds, I think any of us who's been in track has seen that for sure. It's just always mm-hmm. funny to watch. I always, that always cracked me up. You know, you see that kid who's like, they just, they just have to grit their way through it. But what are the, what are the greater themes from that? And, you know, throughout the show, I, I keep, you know, obviously I, I could talk track all day. But I also want to keep the themes of this also global. And I, I do think about like just hurdling in general as such a great base of things. And I also think like even even if you're just in the weight room, start, starting with not only just hurdle for team sport athletes, not just hurdle dynamics walking over, but even like some low level, really low level, like just even invoking some skips hurdle level stuff. I think it's awesome for any athlete. It's like one of those hidden things that I think we miss sometimes. And um, you know, Paul Cater, who's been on the show, has talked about how he uses a lot of music and rhythm in his just general physical preparation sessions. And he talks about how he, he sees that the athletes who aren't very good with rhythm are the ones who are the most injury prone, the ones who can never get the steps or anything like that. And I can totally see that too, because it's like, sure. it, it's just, it's, it's the, within that rhythm is, and, and hurdles, you have mobility with it as well, but you have just the tuning almost of tendon and muscle, as Paul calls it. Like things just, the timing just gets better. And so I, I love that as a, I thought, I wish, I wish I could have gone back and started with hurdles. I was a kid too, mm-hmm. who I think I had a lot of insecurities and I would have loved to have done the hurdles my freshman year or they didn't have, I, my middle school track was a joke. It was like with the softball throw to the javelin, like I <laughs> had half the events, like it was weird, but, and they didn't even have hurdles. So I, my freshman mm-hmm. year, I'm like, what are these things? And I wish I would have been more like, like these days, like I want to go do decathlon. I want to do masters decathlons. Like I would show me it. I'll do it. Like I, I've gotten over my fear of being bad at some events. Whereas I was too like, oh, I, back when in the day, I was like, oh, I'm really good at jumping. So I'm going to make sure I do that. I'm okay at sprinting. You throw me in the four by one. You won't see if I'm getting, you know, burnt on the third leg too badly or whatever. And I was okay with that. But long story short, is I, I ended up doing them my senior year after mm. making like, my dad made me like PVC hurdles my junior. I just practiced. I was like, oh, I am pretty decent at this. And I just did it, just threw myself in it 
I, you know, coached my senior year and did okay. I made it to like the state regionals or something in the 110s. And, but I, I wish I would have done it earlier. And I think I just can't help but think too the positive impact on like my jumping events. And, you know, back when I was coaching at Wilmington College, like I remember the hurdles was always if I had athletes who did a lot of stuff, like maybe they did long jump, they did the four by one, they did other things and they did the hurdles. I actually based more of my training around the hurdles than their other stuff. Just because mm. I'm like, there's more qualities get here. If I had to pick one quality, I feel like there's more qualities being engaged here than other things. And part of it is almost that, like Richard Ashavis, I don't know if he talked about this on the podcast, but like the emotional, the, the emotional thing, like I was talking about the mental component of a physical thing. Like when you hurdle, there's like a little fight. Like there's always fight in there. Even if it's just you, like you have to hit those steps and those rhythm because there is that slight, just like a little bit of cliff jumping type risk, you know, just like a little bit in pole vault. Like there's that thing in there that's making you go. There's the rhythm. So that's how I always approached it. And so long story, <laughs> I wish I would have done it my freshman year. That's awesome that you have your athletes do that. I'm going to play uh, your devil's advocate just for a moment. I don't think I believe sure. this at all by any means, but what if someone was going to say, oh, well, that's going to chop their stride length in the hundred and then they won't be as good in sprints or something, something. I don't know. Like it was you anything, anything you would say with that. So, yeah. So like one of the things that we spend a lot of time doing is I do dynamic stereotype runs that we're trying to break that up. So they'll have mm. different key yeah. zones that we'll have like, Hey, you got to fly in 30. Now we're going to a run. We're going to straight leg bound. We're going to sprint. Mm -hmm. We're going to glide. We're going to sprint again. You're going to a run. And so what we're trying to do is always make them mindful while they're working a lot of people you know they talk about flow state and and all of that but like there are things where maybe flow state isn't a reality like you're talking about like when you're hurtling there are 10 barriers mm -hmm. that are there that you have to think about you know and they talk about like snipers like you literally have to tell yourself here i go right before you're about to pull that trigger and you're not punching the trigger you're just here I go, pull, 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 you know, because people want to do that. Well, the very first time that Sky was running the hurdles, she was mouthing something to herself. <laughs> and when we, when one of my assistant coaches pulled her aside, said, Hey, were you talking to yourself? What were you saying? And she was saying, One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. So something as simple as that she knows she's got a three step. She was keeping count as she was doing it, staying in the moment where it's not like a complete closed down, shut reactionary thing, mm -hmm. but being purposefully and intentional in that process. And I'm like, wow, that's that's kind of powerful. And then what happens is sometimes that flow state gives us confidence that actually makes us not as high of a performer as we could be, mm -hmm. you know, that we're we're too flow and not as thoughtful as we should be. And I think that hurdles by far is one of the best things. Our distance girls at the end of every one of their aerobic runs does hurdle mobility. Our sprinters, hurdlers, and jumpers every Wednesday when we do active recovery, they do hurdle mobility as part of their active recovery, whether they can initially hurdle or not. And it teaches them, we teach them to bounce. So we're not just stepping over, yeah, right? Exactly, yeah. We're having an elastic component. <clears throat> There's a bounce, a bounce, a bounce, a bounce. And so by the time they're a senior, they've gotten used to being bouncy, being elastic, not being completely flat footed in the action, getting the toe up, getting the knee up, coordinating the arms. And like, I always look at this stuff, which you kind of touched on, but I think it needs to be reemphasized is the idea of creating those interconnected firing pa patterns, mm -hmm. but also developing 
what I say, a little bit of an inoculation versus injury. So we're strengthening the tendons, we're strengthening the the connective tissues, we're strengthening the joints and their responses in a restrained movement. But then also we then spend time expanding the movement too. So when people are like, oh, it's going to be too choppy too soon, I, I I don't think so. You know, I don't I don't think so. I think if you're being yeah. intentional, like Sky, one, two, three, one, mm-hmm. two, three, one, two, three, that she knows what the task is versus there's no hurdles here and it's just push, 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 right? Seven steps, rise, 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 run. You know, like if you're thinking about those things and you're having that conversation and that takes practice, you know, and you don't necessarily want to be talking to yourself all the time, but you should probably have that internal dialogue going. So yeah, there's so much there that's so great. And I think that what we, sh- and this is the point of the critical mass system. I want to make decathletes. You just said it. Mm-hmm. I want my athletes to be good at everything because if they're good at everything, they're still going to get a college scholarship. I'm not going to have a kid not become an all state hundred meter girl because she throws the javelin. She's still going to accelerate. She's still going to be explosive. We're still going to have a live arm. We're still going to be responding quick. I want to make sure that I'm giving them, I'm honoring the athletic experience by stimulating them like they're a heptathlete, like they're a decathlete, doing all of these things so that they can be a better overall athlete, more injury resistant, and be able to do a wider menu of events and to know in our heart of hearts, this is probably their best path by the time they're a senior. Yeah. I think too, for, you know, I, I don't know how, what proportion of athletes in your program, uh, you know, are, are single sport come from other sports, you know, and obviously it's not like you have a massive amount of control on it you know where you get you know you have your athlete pool and but i i think too for those athletes who and i I, my feeling is that and and from what i hear it is certainly becoming more and more specialized and in my time little time in high school track i saw that it was almost completely specialized in track and i was like sheesh like this is you know where the athleticism here is like it's like it's is i saw was pretty much lacking and i think on some level at least in the small group that I had worked with a couple of years ago. But I think at some level, like Jeremy Frisch talks about, by the time athletes, you get them in high school, by the time you get them, if they don't have the, the background, there's not as much you could do at that point. But even in the microcosm of what you do have, I, I do, I, I love that idea just in the sense of, you know, it's like we're avoiding being early specialists, even in this, in this microcosm of high school track, you know, and you stereotyping yourself as, oh, I just do this or I do that. And I've, I've seen so many athletes too, who it, it is like they, they thought they were just going to do a certain thing. And then they did another event like, whoa, I'm really good at, you know, I, and seeing those success stories in, in that scope is always really cool. So, you know, if you have any final thoughts on that, or maybe, you know, what, I, what I'd be interested to just briefly is in kind of porting this over to a more general, I love what you saw with the bounce because yeah, like I think if like a strength and conditioning program or the other events, distance runners, you know, oh, let's do hurdle mobility and you're just walking or, well, that's good. It's, you know, it's, it's a good stimulus, but I, I was just thinking of this the other day. There's some things that hit home more, the more years that I've coached and done it. And I was out at the track last week. I did, um, I was going to do some tempo sprints and I, I warmed up with some hurdles. The hurdles, I was after the high school team is off and all the hurdles were at the side. So I was like, all right, I'll pull out four hurdles and I'll start messing around. And I had some headphones in and had like a, a beat, you know, beats per minute thing going on. And I was like, I was just remembering just how bouncy like little quick hurdle drills are. Just in the sense of like, when you watch someone to do like those double bounce hurdle hops where they're just doing that little, little mini bounce in the middle, 
And when you watch plyos too, it's like you could do like the big high hurdle hops where you have like a lot of ankle flexion, a lot of dorsiflexion, a long ground contact time. And then sometimes the athlete will land on the other side of that hurdle and just bounce away, you know, just that little ping. And there is so much of that little ping going on in hurdling and on one leg too, which is even more specific. And that's just, to me, it's so funny because it's like, all right, you know, here I am. 39 and I'm going back to this thing that I did in high school hurdling and I've, I've hurdled actually all throughout you know my 20s and 30s when I can when I can get hurdles but I always just I think especially put track spikes on too or even if you don't have them, it's just there's so much bounce in inherent in that once you just start to make it bouncy and like you said you don't have to full out hurdle but just do some stuff that requires a little bit of bounce between the hurdles and you can get a lot out of that and it I think in terms of complexity, it actually can simplify a lot of potential complexity. It's like, well, you could do all your double leg hops, forwards and sideways, and those are great, you know, but you also could just hurdle and do bouncy stuff. And you're basically going to get that. And honestly, I feel like it's a little bit better because it's more organic, you know? So yeah, I, I love yeah, that and bounce that's, element. It, 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 and to jump in, that's exactly the whole idea of the critical mass system. I'm trying to cover a lot of things in certain sessions and i'm not afraid that oh my god i'm not going to see that for eight days or nine Mm -hmm. days it's like because i am seeing that i'm seeing that through this particular unit of training this particular drill this particular activity you know and like you said like well what's the best bang for the buck well let's do things that cover all these bases like you talked about this a long time ago we had a conversation it's like when you walk into the weight room what's the first thing you do well, it better be an Olympic lift variation, right? Because that's the most neurally fresh you're going to be is right when you warm up and you get in there, you probably shouldn't start with like something that's, you know, doesn't have a high motor unit uh, response, doesn't have a high motor unit request. You know, you need to have those things be right up front to set the tone for everything else. And you can get a lot done by just doing that, you know, as opposed to going into weird minutia when you can cover quite a few bases and know that other things cover that too. And I think that that's really powerful. And I think, you know, again, in general, we want to see people being athletic and how can we force them to be athletic? How can we force them to deal with restraints that force them to improve their awareness and, and athleticism and hurdles was great for that. Yeah. With the, with the 400s, you mentioned the hurdles and you mentioned obviously the 400. And I think that that probably that mention of that event and that distance and the associated training probably sets people have all right which way how are we training for the 400 right are we, are we just going to bury them with tempo like and that's your you know or whatever like right and especially as a freshman sophomore and you're building them into the athlete that they ideally can be and giving them options how do you approach that 400 training for athletes coming in yeah so for me one of the things is is i think people they go really hard in a philosophy or an idea. So like if they hear that, oh yeah, you know, like I used to do Clyde Hart training or whatever, we'd run 24 200s. Well, that is obviously, in my opinion, an abuse of a developmental mm-hmm. athlete and in terms of an abuse of what the value of tempo might be, right? Or hey, just because Banta says we have to run 450s and 350s, well, how many do you need to run? Because like In my opinion, one of the things that drives my coaching philosophy, which can go for any sport, is what is the aspect of the competition you're trying to target? You know, so like for me as a track and field athlete, if my athletes are going to have to run four events in a meet at some point in the year, well, then I probably should have four intervals 
in my practice once in a while. And they should probably be high quality. And I probably should have huge recoveries so that the body knows what that looks like. Now, when I say that to you, then other people will be like, well, that's all I should do. I should never do five. I should never do two. You know, I should do four. And it's like, no, 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 because you have to take training somewhere, right? You have to take it with density, intensity, frequency. And so you have to figure out what do you want to change? So for me, if a kid's going to run the 400, I don't spend a lot of time running short recovery 150s and do a 400 meter predictor workout, right? To me, that makes no sense. Instead, I would rather race model over distance or under distance race model what I expect, you know? And so then for that, we would, we would talk about what the expected race model is for that particular race. And then we would train to it and I would have visuals and I have cones and different things set up for the different aspects of that, that I want done. But then also because that event requires maximum velocity and acceleration and stuff, there would be another day throughout the week where my athletes are going to see that, or within the 14 days, they're going to see something that specifically targets that, even though that may not be the catch-all, be-all workout for a 400-meter runner, we're still doing those things as supportive to the main workout and the main intentional workouts, which is at the speed, near the speed we want them to run and sprint, near the distance that we want them to sprint, near the recoveries that they're going to see in competition. You have to have days that reflect the real thing. Now, you don't have to do it all the time, and you shouldn't, but you should have days. So for me, I always try to start in the middle. So if you like it, look at the USATF volumes and, and breakdowns of intensity, right? Like I'm always trying to match the intensity. So if we're going maximum velocity and it takes 92% to 95% to get to the maximum velocity, well, on a max velocity day, we're doing that. But if the USATF training manual says we can go all the way up to like 800 meters of max. Well, I'm absolutely not doing that mm. on my first week of training. I'm going to start with the smallest recommended dose. And then I am going to go up. I'm not going to stay in the same place because we need things to morph. We need things to change to force the athlete to keep adaptating. But I'm going to make sure that on that particular day, I kind of honor those basic pr- paradigms for what they want to get done for that particular aspect of track and field, just like I would in the weight room as well. You know, I'm not going to start with the heaviest amount of volume and load and all that kind of stuff, but I'm going to start somewhere in the middle so that we can kind of get an understanding of what is the necessary things that we need to get done. Interesting. Uh, You know, you'd mentioned that back in the beginning of the show and it sounds like, you know, I, I feel like it's a very popular system to go ends to middle. Like, you know, if I'm running the 100, I'm going to work on acceleration at the beginning of the year and then maybe some, you know, longer sprints or tempo or something. And then I'll come down into that race zone. It sounds like, I mean, is, you, is what you're saying like the opposite of that in the sense of like start with the 100, it's close cousins and then explore the outside? You know what I'm saying? Or I, I, I think, I don't think what that comparison is completely fair, but I'm curious what your take is in light of that concept at least. 100%. So one of my biggest critics said, hey, Banta, you're a centrist and centrists never make history. I go, but what if it's better to be a centrist? And that's actually the right path. And it's one of those things where like, people don't seem to understand. It's like, if I'm in the center at first, and then depending on the revelation of whatever's happening through their events, their strength of events, their needs, then I'm going to then dial in those things. But I want to make sure that I'm in the ballpark. Because what happens is if you're a high, 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 long, long, long guy, okay, then you may never actually get to fast. 
Yeah. You never get there. I have a day, at least two days in a 14 day microcycle where we're going really, really, really fast. And then there's two other days where you're competing and you're going really, really fast. So there are four days in 14 where we're wheels freaking up afterburners on. But then there's also days where I'm going longer and we're going more enduring and they're still fast, but they're specifically fast for that race, that overload, that distance. And what happens with a short to long person is they never get long. They never get specific enough because what ends up happening is the natural psychology is versus biology, which is more of the problem with long to short, is that with short to long, the psychology is, well, I don't want to go run a 150 now. Oh, my God, that seems scary. I don't want to run a 400. I don't want to run a 300. Oh, my God, we've never gotten there. And my philosophy is let's rip the Band-Aid off of all those things. Let's start in the middle. Let's make sure we honor those particular things on those particular days and set them up in an order that makes sense. So let me clarify that too. In my program, we have two key performance indicator workouts every week. One is a little bit more speed, power-based. One is a little bit more endurance, resilience-based. We have one tempo workout a week, which is typically on a Tuesday after that key performance indicator workout, regardless if it's long or short. Then we have an active recovery day, right? Which is a Wednesday typically in our program because we compete Saturday. Then we have the other KPI workout on Thursday. Friday is pre-meet where we do do something, but we don't become exhaustive. So we're taking care of all the odds and things we need to do on pre-meet. Then Saturday we compete. So you're doing all things. Okay. And then Sunday is a complete recovery day. And then you flip-flop the key performance indicator workouts the following week. You still have a tempo day, but it might not look the same. You still have an active recovery day, right? You still have your pre-meet day. You still have your competition. And then what I try to do within that is each week I try to have a different theme, a week that's built around speed power, a week that's built around speed, a week that's built around power, a week that's built around endurance, and then a recovery week. Yeah. And then each of those weeks, I try to change the menu of events to match my theme which is kind of the driver of why I do what I do on those weeks. Today's podcast is also brought to you by the Elastic Essentials online course. Elastic Essentials is my flagship educational product. If you're interested in my training process, how I build, design, and see a program, how I see dynamic athleticism, and how I see creating the best possible transfer into athletic outputs, Then check out the Elastic Essentials course. It's worth NSCA and NASM CEUs. You can find it by heading to justflysports.com and clicking on the blue banner to the right. You can learn more about the course there, the modules, and the information. And I hope you get a chance to check it out. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, I I have a lot of fun getting into the complexity. I'm sure if I was sitting there with you and we were looking at it on paper, I mean, that's, I enjoy doing that kind of thing in person as well. Sure. I think it's interesting to also look at like, like what's the simplest possible like core, you know, without being over reductionist too. And right. I like, um, you know, I've seen to, to draw it out to other structures or events. Grant Fowler was on the show a while ago talking about how he would run basically like a 14 day cycle. I think maybe even a 21 day cycle in context of the gym. And I did that a lot as well. Like I, I started doing that when I was at Cal and even something as simple as, all right, week one, we're doing power cleans. Week two, it's a high pull with a tendo. Week three, back to power cleans without a tendo. You're just something as simple as, I always felt like people just did so much better with that just because it's just basic week-to-week variation from a bonder chuck perspective. You're just not adapting as fast either. You know, however long 
the, the more times that stimulus is in in a short period of time, you'll adapt to it faster. And if it's less, if it's less dense, you'll adapt to it slower, but it's also a little bit more fresh week to week. And there's other, um, Correct. like uh, Neil Amora was one of the people too, who had, he had talked about his basic, you know, as basic as you get, you know, set up. And he was one of the first guys who I'd read where, that broke me out of always just thinking what's always three weeks in a deload. Maybe it can be two weeks in a deload or even one week in a deload. But he had talked about his basic structure being basically a week where it was three strength days and maybe two power days or something like something like that. And then the next week it would flip flop and it was three power days and two strength. I, it wasn't that dense. I don't think it was, it was less, but if it was, or maybe it was just, it was, two, it was two days were strength, one day power. And then you flip flop it the next week and it's two days power, one day strength, something like that. So you know, just something as basic as that, where you're just flip flopping strength power. It just sounds like you're basically just on the most basic level. You're just flip flopping speed and endurance, speed, endurance, speed, endurance. Correct. Within the two weeks over and over and over again. And yeah. then even within the themes of the weeks in general, based around the competition that they're doing. And like you said, it, that is so critical. It's like, well, I need to power clean and I need to do a single leg. Well, are you power cleaning? That, that That's like the, the ens- essence of it. Are you doing an Olympic lift variation week to week to week? And is it building off of something previously? If you are, you're good. You're You're in the ballpark. You're covering that particular thing that you need to do, which is so essential. Hey, are you doing some sort of plyometric response jumping? Yes. Does it have to be endurance bounding? Does it have to be jumping on and off of boxes? Maybe. Does it have to be doing the jump rope and running with it? You know, it's like, but there's something about we're always having some kind of component where there's something plyometric, right? And you're just always having those things. And you can cover a lot of bases, like you said. And then trying to keep it as simple as you can is just that idea of flip-flopping days. And then on those days, having an emphasis of a little bit lower than the the race that you're targeting and a little bit longer than the race that you're targeting. And then you're, you're within the ballpark of what I'm trying to get done every day. Yeah. I will say, you know, I, I look at myself as, um, I guess just, just an end of one here. And I do think that I've, like I said, I was insecure in high school. I ran like the open 100 once my senior year. Cause it was like a goof off me. And I knew by that point, cause I'd run some pretty fast four by ones. I was like, all right, I won't do too terrible. So I was confident enough to to jump in it. But I, I think that just that, like, I'm the type of person that that would have been, ha- and a coach to, I think, back the importance of those very specific types of workouts. That would have been helpful to someone like me. Cause I was someone who very easily, like, even high jump, like, I very easily got lost in plyometrics too far because I actually got better at plyos than I did at high jump. And, and, you know, like, and I go back to even like the hurdles. I, and these days, I, I love like hurdles to color, or like doing the actual full speed thing. And so I do think there's something that is that is powerful to that. And I look at myself, at least in that perspective, with you can't ignore the thing you're eventually going to do. What, I, I, what I'd like to ask you about that, though, in the level of how do you avoid staleness like that? In the sense that, right, like you're doing the same, you're doing a 14-day cycle or you're doing something with everything in it that's relatively centrist for throughout the season. I think you mentioned it already, like volume, like you start low with volume, but Talk to me about how you avoid like staleness if you're doing that centrist thing for a long period of time. Well, the biggest thing is is that you know we're we're high school coaches, so one of the things like if I have a kid who's out and doing winter conditioning with me, I bring them to a peak in the winter. So we unload the body both in intensity and in in total volume of load and density, and we bring those kids to a peak, and then I reload them again for the spring, you know, and some basic principles. And then we do the same thing. If they're running summer track and they're not with us, they're absolutely going to go through that again. And so each time you're giving them some step away. I always talk about like the transition phase 
between seasons might very well be the most important phase you have, right? So that you have planned recovery, planned breaks, not forced breaks through injuries and things like that. And then the thing is, is I go from simple movements to complex. So for example, if we're doing work on the, on the track and we're doing running drills, you know, like we'll go from doing high knees and let's say butt kicks, right. And then we'll go from doing high knees and butt kicks on a curve. Then we'll go from high knees and butt kicks on the curve with altering our hand positions, very Franz Bosch. Then what I'll do is I'll go from high knee or high knees blending into a butt kick to an A run, you know, and you go from more and more and more complex, or we'll add in a miniature sprint off the back of that drill, right? Or we'll have them do the drill up a hill. So even though and that's the magic of it, you have these things that you're doing that are the basic movement, the basic expectation, the basic biomotor ability. And then as you move every three weeks in a high school season, I'm twisting it. So instead of just doing high knees, then we're doing high knees in a curve. Mm. Then we're doing high <clears> knees <throat> with different hand positions. Then we're doing high knees with a sprint on. Then we're doing high knees, butt kick into an A run, right? Or we're doing an A skip. Then we're doing a double tap A skip. Then we're doing an A skip, B skip complex. And so what happens is even though they're still A skipping, it's A skip with a twist. So they know what that is. And then the twist is not so severe that it's going to send them into an injury situation or a delayed onset of muscle soreness. It's going to, it's going to be stimulative and we keep them from getting stale. We keep them from getting flat. Same thing in the weight room. Hey, we're going to do a bench press. Okay. Are we doing a hypertrophic bench? Maybe. Are we doing push-ups? Maybe. Okay. That might be where you start. Then we go maximal, right? Then we go to a fast as possible or velocity-based training. Then we go to a ballistic one. Then maybe we go to a proprioceptive one where now they're on a Swiss stability ball and they're using dumbbells instead of the Olympic bar. And so you're constantly, they're always bench pressing. That's always happening but they're doing the bench press with a twist and we're constantly moving them forward. And through those methods, you know, we've had some kids and, you know, girls, I coach girls exclusively. And I always talk about like, how do you know you're a good coach? Do your girls get better when they're juniors and seniors? My girls most of the time do. And that's because of these twists and because I'm not going so narrow in my biomotors and the things that I'm targeting that we leave things on the table that we can continue to work with, right? So Robert Downey Jr. talked about this on a podcast. He's like, faster alone or further together. Well, you know, a lot of times people think about that as like community and friendship and working together and this whole idea, but it's the exact same thing with the body. You go down this one lonely path, you're going to make some pretty quick improvements in that one thing you're doing all the time, but you're not going to go as far as you could. So I'd rather not go as fast with this improvement of this one thing i'd rather slow it down but improve them throughout the entire thing so when it's time for them to finally be done they are a robust resilient multi-talented athlete that truly knows what their best event is why we constantly stimulate them with a twist 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 as they go through every three weeks to six weeks cool you know, as you were talking about that too so I like all that novelty, you know, that definitely, you know, the midst of the track season and having that next skill level up to get to, you know, that's, I, I just feel like that's always an important thing to have that uh, skill mastery element. I'm curious though, um, with the speed too, you mentioned, you know, centrist point of view, but you start with low volumes. So do you typically, is it just kind of just that, like starting really low volume and then just 
like because how does the actual speed work progress like uh, outside of the so not necessarily the drills of the weight room but like the actual sprinting itself how does that progress and how do you keep that from getting stale throughout the year i'll say just one other thing too and you can throw your thoughts in on this in whatever way you like is i always feel like you know they talk about at least on the men's side or boys side football and track and i think in the sense of I like almost in the sense that there's times that you're sometimes where you're not necessarily thinking about time. You're just sprinting and playing and you get that biomotor, that side of the biomotor equation where there's not even a time on it per se. But then you go into quantitative land where it's like, yes, now there's a time. Now I'm going to ramp this up in this specialization. Then I'll re-expand it in football or soccer or basketball or whatever. And I know for me, that was always a real cool thing to go and play basketball and then the next year in track, I'm faster, I'm stronger, I've gained all these qualities. And now this is exciting. Wow, I'm already so much faster than that. You know what I'm saying? And, and so all I'm asking is just your thoughts on that general to spe- or general and specific interplay. And then how you, yeah, and, how, and or, man, I'm making this question complicated, right? I'm really sorry if I have to doing this. But then also your, uh, how you, how you ramp the speed up through the year. So the big thing is, is like, there's a bunch of different things you can do. Like we already talked about it. You can break down those dynamic stereotype runs. So you go from just doing a fly 10 to a fly 20 to a fly 30. Mm-hmm. I think everybody knows that, but then we can go from that and then do, all right, we're doing a fly 10, a run, fly 10, straight leg bound, fly 20, fly 30, fly 40 with different variations of movements, different calls and response. Or like, for example, we're going to do a run where you're going for 30 meters, but now we're going to work on hey, we want you to run as l- with the longest stride you possibly can. All mm. right, now we want you to run with the quickest frequency oh, we cool. want to possibly poles, can. Yeah. So, so we try to measure that out, and then that becomes another point of emphasis. We have a slight, slight, slight downhill that we can run kids on as well that I like to use on my campus for overspeed. You know, a lot of people like to then add in the pool. And the thing is, is like I always feel like people want to go to that too quick. Hold those things off allow those things to be the extra topping on top of the ice cream later in the season, right? That mm. you're throwing in that they now know they're competent in the movements and things. And this is going to be the next thing that's going to stimulate them up, you know? So those are things that we do. Uh, another thing we do is like in the beginning of the year, I always sprint into the wind, you mm. know, and then when we get to the end of the year, I'm trying to find wind wherever I can. And we try to sprint away from the room yeah. with, with the wind. Mental, yeah. Mental switch over. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so those are things that we try to do all the time. I mean, we have a ramp in our school that we can run on. But again, I want to be conscientious of, you know, shin splints and, and things mm-hmm. like that. But again, that is a slight decline. We can sprint down that and have that overemphasis of speed as long as they're not having breakdowns and getting way out in front of themselves and hitting braking forces. And then everything else in my program is moving from simple to complex, simple to fast. So like the weight room goes from basically like slow movements to power movement to speed movements to ballistic movements, you know, so you're constantly dialing up the neurological system. The drills go from simple movements to more power movements to more speed to, and everything is moving that way. And we're still sprinting fast in the meat and potatoes part of our energy system practices, but those are types of things. So you go from <clears throat> extending out the distance of the run, extending the intentionality of the run, overemphasizing striding, overemphasizing frequency, having different cued runs, this 20 meter zone, you're going to do this task, this 20 meter zone, you're going to run this task. And we're putting it all together, doing that stuff off of a curve, running opposite around the curve, going the other direction at full speed, changing the hands, taking away the arms while they're doing it, forcing them to focus just on their core, removing the arms away. There are other things that we do that people would totally disagree with, but sometimes I'll put a light vest 
on a kid and have them run at full speed with that overload as well, constantly trying to deal with something that's novel and new, even though the task can seem so rudimentary and basic, but it doesn't require an absolutely ridiculous off the wall thing. It just needs to be a slight variation away. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was thinking too, um, so like the Tony Wells system, I don't think we'll have time to really get into you know your knowledge with that. But I, I know that from my understanding of it, that he did a fall. And because I was going to ask you what this was, starting with the centrist, starting with the, I mean, what, how early in the year are you, is your team starting track practice and these girls going through this training to the point they're, you're doing this and there's these variations, they're not going to get stale. But I think Tony for the fall, obviously this is university, they're training in the fall, they're not doing another sport for the most part. Is it was, I don't think they even sprinted. It was just plyos, like straight leg bounds, lifts, extra, I think extra genie, that's sprinting. But like, you know, it was more like, it was more of a general, let's get more powerful, bouncy, explosive, and then we'll start sprinting later. So he like saved it. That's kind of what I was asking too. So I'm curious when you, well, one, what if, what your thought is, well, when do you start sprinting? And then also maybe a little bit about Tony's system as well, Tony Wells. So I think that, you know, interestingly enough, Tony was probably the best real world example of doing a lot of the stuff that we assumed that the Soviets and the Germans Mm. were doing, right? Very, very high altitude plyometric jumps, right? Um, Or drops, very, very fast speed, super heavy in the weight room. And he's the guy that that actually went hard on that and actually did that. Hence the reason why his system's called adapt or die. But the Mm. thing that everybody forgets about Tony is that he also was very prescriptive. So depending on what he would see with his constant continuous testing, he would then say, this test tells me that this is no longer up to snuff, which is very much like Anatoly Bonnerchuk, right? Where you're constantly changing these things based mm-hmm. on what you're seeing. Are you seeing a training response? Well, I'm going to continue to keep doing these things until I do. Or I'm seeing something go backwards, which means now I need to now apply or prescribe this type of training that I know will make this athlete better. So for example, like the back end of the kid's race is not up to snuff and they are coming out of the blocks and driving really well and they're not rushing their start. He's like, all right, what's happening here is we're getting discoordinated at max velocity. So what he would do is he would have a whole bunch of, you know, run in um, endurance bounding of alternating left, right, left, right, or right, right, left, left, Mm -hmm. left, right. And that would become a big part of his program or he'd spend more time doing fly-in runs to work on coordinating that speed once you've had it and then maybe overloading them with the pull. And so Tony was really, really good at that. And so like when you're talking about him not doing the running and holding that back, well, that strikes me very much as a block method, right? Where you're having this block and knowing that you're going to sacrifice early some aspects of the track and field part for the benefit of getting much more explosive, much more elastic, and much stronger, whether whatever it may be that that Tony would feel that it was a problem. So they were like an outlier in a weakness in the weight room, but yet still were able to hit these times. Well, then he's like, we got to target that. And what makes a really good, a lot of sense about that is when you're in the off season, you can absolutely do that because the pressure isn't on for you to compete in the thing that's the thing. You don't have to necessarily do the thing. You can do things that are going to make you better at that in the off season and not have to worry about sacrificing the track and field meet performance or the basketball game mm-hmm. or the cross country run or the volleyball game. You can do the other things that will make you better. And then the sport itself, which is kind of more a Tony Holler thing, 
makes you better at the actual sport as well. And so there's a lot. I mean, we could do a whole other hour and a half on yeah, on Tony Wells alone. <clears throat> but the big thing about Tony is that he had so much data. He had so much information that he had come up with. If I'm seeing this in a fly 30, then this is taken care of. I can now more focus on hey, the zero step isn't good. Zero to 10 isn't good. Well, now we need to go into the weight room and deal with the weight room. We need to be doing more power cleans or snatches or heavy, heavy lifting. But he wouldn't do that forever because the athlete only has so much physical ability to to withstand it. So he would create every freaking three weeks a lot of recovery so that he wouldn't break the kids when he was overemphasizing very high altitude drops, you know, so he could make sure he's like, all right, this is going to suck. And we're going to be riding the razor's edge on this particular training modality. But once this is done, this component is going to have a long-standing carryover and adaptation that you're always going to be able to do. You know, you're always going to be able to have this and I can get away from it because the other training that I'm going to do is still going to stimulate this a little bit, but it's not going to be at the same risk. And I've addressed it. And so then this other problem in the race would show up, then we can address mm-hmm. that. And that becomes the next target every three weeks. And that's what's so amazing about what Tony Wells was able to do. Now, that being said, if I'm being really critical, Tony was really good at like, he had a, you know, AU record holder in the shot put hurdles and 60 and like hundred meters. Right. But then you go a little bit farther than that, then maybe those methods, right. And that training and that rotation isn't necessarily as good for some of that other stuff. And so like as a coach where I kind of look at that as like, what can I steal, borrow and add into my program that won't be so disruptive that I can't get the things I need to get done in my setting and my environment as a track and field coach. So like in Missouri, the way our schedule set up is that if you want to win titles and you, you're going to have to be able to do more than the hundred meter and 200 meter. And so then I build my whole program around building the athletes so that I can have a track and field team and do more than run the one and the two and the four by one. I got to do more if I'm going to be competitive and my kids have to as well. And then why not do the things philosophically that a lot of other kids aren't going to do, which goes back to one of your questions, which is, you know, Tony got a lot of kids jumping. Tony Wells got a lot of kids throwing. Tony got a lot of kids hurdling. Well, why? Because there's about 50% less kids in those events. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, now the competitive mass is much smaller, and you're going to have a lot more success right away. And Tony Wells knew, I can coach that stuff. Mm-hmm. So he could build all that skill based into the speed power as he went throughout the season after he got that block method done of building just like raw horsepower, raw strength, raw elastic potential. And, uh, he could, and he could do that because he was reshaping his training every three weeks based on what he was seeing. So then he could move away from it and not fear that he's not going to get back to it three weeks later. So it was a constant experiment is what Tony was running all the time, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I know we could definitely talk for another hour on that one. I, you know, well, just one small point you mentioned at the beginning is, um, you know, it's the speed endurance thing and, Hank Kreinhoff had mentioned this, like, you know, with Nellie Kuhlman, like we try when her back half of her race, her hundred wasn't very good. You know, people were like, oh, we'll train more endurance. And he did. And it made her start so much worse. You know, it's, but I think about 
like what Tony did, it almost like personalizes it to the person more like someone who's a sprinter, who's fast twitch, who it's like, let's just take this chunk and let's put, let's hit it from a coordination perspective, not just a, like a broad, you know, like a, a fly with a shotgun energetic. Oh, you just need to run more. You just need to run farther. Let's actually get in the coordination of this. I watch people like Femke Bull, who set the 400 record, Abby Steiner, like they, they have great speed endurance in their races and they just keep their rhythm. Like you watch their torsos, everything is together just a little better than everybody else. And it, once you kind of get the eye for that, and even, you know, in my own work and getting a lot more into it, putting rhythm type movements, coordination movements into sprinting, sprint endurance, both in my athlete programs and then even just doing it myself, like you feel it. And yeah, it's really cool. I, I could talk about that forever. I, I do, before we get out of here, I, I do want to ask you just one other question. It's almost a little bit di- different or disconnected from everything else, but just your take on, on sleds, like, like sled training hills, anything in the resisted world uh, of sprinting, sprint velocity profiling, I guess probably don't have a 1080 with your group, but any concepts um, related to that that you think are really applicable to uh, a sprint population or people wishing to improve acceleration? I, I love those things. And again, we rotate those things, right? So we go from hills to a resisted sled, to vests, to a bullet belt. And so what we're trying to do is constantly go from the basic movement, the basic skills to more and more advanced with a twist, with a twist, with a twist. And then we also try to expand that out. One of the best things about sleds is it teaches an athlete how to push. What happens is, is like, you'll see that they'll rotate, 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 and they're not going anywhere where when you have a sled, it forces them to do that. Ken Clark doctor, you know, where you're, you're actually switching that stuff, you know, and you're switching the knees and you're switching the thighs and it's the push, the push, the push that when we see it, we know what that looks like at a top flight sprinter versus somebody who's just kind of spinning their wheels and stepping over their ankles and really not going anywhere. So I like it from a teaching perspective. It's something like, ah, that's going to slow them down. No, it's going to teach them how to push properly, which eventually will allow them to build up more momentum potential that allows them to then accelerate faster down the track and reach the faster speeds later, not only in the race itself, but in the season. And again, I like to use those things as teachable tools, but then also constantly twitching them or twisting them. The other thing I like is I like to go heavy, medium, and then I like to go light. You know, oh, there's our bell for school, guys. So that's the end of our day. But um, I like to do that over and over and over again load heavy medium light so you're also taking advantage of that pap effect right and so when we're taking advantage of that pap effect you're not going to get discoordinated from going so heavy to so light that you're like you know you're just looking like you're buying the farm and you know you're falling all over the place and arms are flailing i want to make sure that we are being mindful of that coordination too i love that stuff it's a big part of my program the bullet belt is an awesome tool fan freaking tastic to use the sleds are awesome and you know again early on hills might be the best because you can get a lot of people in it at once and then as you start to narrow down your training group and specific needs then you can go to you know sleds and vests and then bullet belt as you narrow down just from a pure management perspective within your practices of who you're trying to work with and who you're trying to enhance cool yeah i know i'm kind of have to cut things off sadly short you you got the bell i got my battery but hey, it was great sitting down chatting with you, Ryan. And, and you know, I, I hadn't given um, just getting into your system due justice. So I'm glad I could actually sit here and have you go into it. I'm sure we could talk for another three hours about it. But I love it, man. I, the hurdles in 400 thing, too. That's like, that is so, that's totally sticking with me, man. I just love that idea. And um, yeah, yeah, 
really, really great talking to you today. So thank you so much, man. Absolutely, dude. It's my pleasure as always. And anybody who wants to reach out, I'm easy to get on Twitter, Instagram, all that kind of stuff. So thanks guys for listening. Hopefully you got something out of it and feel free to follow up. Don't be a stranger. Ask questions. That's what I feel I'm here for. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I appreciate you all. If you want to help us out, you can leave us a rating or review on Spotify, iTunes, whatever your favorite podcast platform is. I would totally appreciate it. And have yourself a great week. We'll see you next Thursday or whenever you tune in again.